Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 3rd, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Israel only. And thank you for listening. This evening, we are going to discuss the unforgivable sin. This is sort of a sequel to a program that we did on the same subject several weeks ago. And shortly, as we get into the body of this work, because it is a review and expansion on something which Clifton Emmeheiser had written, I will explain why. We know from the New Testament, as well as the Old, that the sin of fornication, which describes several sorts of sexual indecency, such as prostitution, also includes race mixing. One place where this is clear, where this is clearly evident, is at Jude 7, where we read that fornication is the pursuit of strange or different flesh. The Greek word there is heteros. It doesn't really mean strange as in something odd, but it is something odd if you're doing it. It really means different. To chase somebody of different flesh is to race mix, and that's the context in which Jude had used that term. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul of Tarsus had used the same word and warned the Christians at Corinth not to commit fornication referring them to a race-mixing event for which the ancient children of Israel were severely punished, which is found in Numbers chapters 24 and 25. In the words of Christ himself, he proclaims that he will kill the children of those who commit fornication as he punishes the sinners themselves. In Revelation chapter 2, pretty harsh of Jesus to kill children. Fornication is one of the acts expressly prohibited by the apostles in Acts chapter 15, and Paul admonished different sorts of fornicators in his epistles. Why have the churches abandoned these teachings? Until the 1970s, the Southern Baptist Convention opposed such fornication. They openly opposed race mixing. But eventually, and primarily because the government had ultimately forced the issue, in part by threatening to revoke tax-exempt status, the Baptist churches all relented, and so had all other churches. This was facilitated by a 1967 SCOTUS decision, Supreme Court of the United States decision, named, rather ironically, Loving versus Virginia. It would have been more appropriate if the man who filed the lawsuit, if his name was Hating, or perhaps Sinning versus Virginia. In the history of the early American colonies, Laws were generally not needed, since most Christians would never do such a thing. But there were always exceptions, and in diverse places, 
Such laws became necessary in order to maintain a Christian society. After the so-called Civil War, many states did find such laws to be necessary, and they stood for a hundred years. By devout Christians, it was considered natural, normal, and godly to maintain one's own race and not to mingle with others. Those laws were not made because of some sort of unfair racism, but rather they were made because men loved God and sought to keep his commandments as Christ insisted that they do. So we must ask, has God changed? If a Christian does not believe the words of Christ or his apostles, how can he still be called a Christian? God has not changed, as Paul of Tarsus also proclaims in his first epistle, I'm sorry, in his only epistle to the Hebrews in chapter 13, where he said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. If Christ despised race-mixing fornication, when John received the revelation, he despises it now, and he will always despise it. The modern churches, which have forsaken his word, shall all one day receive his judgment. Naturally, Bible-believing Christians, which are those who acknowledge that Christ expects Christians to keep his commandments, are going to be despised by sinners. This is an inevitable phenomenon concerning which the scriptures themselves warn. But modern churchgoers who have accepted these recent government commandments worship the government rather than Christ. For that, they certainly are all sinners, and they are all idolaters. They are committing idolatry by following the government rather than God. As Europeans were turned from paganism to Christ in the first few centuries of Christianity, the pagans began to despise and persecute them simply because they would no longer engage in, with them in their idolatry. So the apostle Peter had written in chapter 4 of his first epistle, that forasmuch then, as Christ had suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the nations. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they, meaning the people of the nations, the pagans, they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, 
speaking evil of you because you don't party along with them and you've stopped the sexual immorality when you turn to Christ. And they shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Today, as your people of European descent have become disillusioned by modernism and are turning back to paganism, away from Christianity, or rather, they have succeeded in corrupting what they still call Christianity into paganism, once again, they despise the righteous, thinking it's strange that we refuse to go along with them by agreeing with their perversions. And for that, they speak evil of us because we refuse to agree. Real Christians should refuse to agree with their perversions. For that, they hate us vehemently because our very existence stands as a witness and testimony against them that their lust for the flesh and their abominable idolatries are sinful. They hate us merely because we think differently than they do. And they cannot tolerate that because it is a witness that their deeds are evil. They can even try to kill us, but in the end, they shall not escape the wrath of God. They shall not succeed. This attitude of sinners was not new even at the time when Peter had made those warnings found in his first epistle. It is a phenomenon that has manifested itself all throughout history. As we have discussed, and as we are still discussing in our ongoing commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, in Wisdom Chapter 2, we read of this same attitude of the wicked towards the righteous, where the wicked are portrayed as saying, Let us oppress the poor righteous man. Let us not spare the widow, nor reverence the ancient gray hairs of the aged. Let our strength be the law of justice, for that which is feeble is found to be nothing worth, is found to be worth nothing. So the wicked espouse the notion that might makes right. And they say, therefore, let us lie in wait for the righteous, because he is not for our turn. The second chapter of the Wisdom of Solomon, verse 12, that phrase is better translated, <clears throat> he is difficult for us, or he is intractable to us. And it goes on to say, and he is clean contrary to our doings. He upbraids us with our offending the law, the law of God, and objects to our infamy, the transgressings of our education. And many otherwise good people have accepted the ways of the wicked because of the quality of their modern government education. So continuing to speak of the righteous, the wicked then say, from verse 13 of the chapter, he professes to have the knowledge of God, and he calls himself the child of the Lord. He was made to reprove our thoughts. He is grievous unto us, even to behold, for his life is not like other men's. His ways are of another fashion, 
And that's the walk. If you want to walk with Christ, if you want to walk that walk and bear that cross that Christ bore, that's the way you must walk it. By not partaking in the sins of the world. By not agreeing with the righteous in their sin. Otherwise, you're no Christian. You're just LARPing as a Christian, and you're really some pagan or Jew pervert. That's all you really are. Indeed, God has not changed, and what was sinful 3,000 years ago is still sinful today. True Christians stand for that, or they are not truly Christians. They are only deceiving themselves. True Christians, if they, if they really do love and seek to please God, are intractable to the wicked. In other words, they can't be manipulated by the wicked into accepting or even partaking of their corrupted perversions. If race mixing was a sin to the apostles of Christ, then race mixing is still a sin, and anyone who denies that actually despises Christ. For that we read in John chapter 15, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery also had several shades of meaning in the Old Testament. The commandments already said, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Adultery can mean mingling the blood within a race by coveting and having your neighbor's wife, or by mingling and defiling the blood outside the race, by race mixing. And that's how the ancient Greek historians and philosophers also use that word for adultery. Then a little further on in John chapter 15, Christ said, These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, so you keep the commandments and you become intractable to the sinners, therefore the world hates you. In January of 2007, Clifton Emmerheiser had written his first paper on this subject of the unforgivable sin, which we are certain is fornication the label that is given to miscegenation or race mixing in scripture. That essay was titled The Unpardonable Sin, and we reviewed and expanded upon it here just three weeks ago. Now we shall review a second of Clifton's papers, which was written only a few months later, in September of that same year, and which is titled Unforgivable Sin, a step-by-step explanation. So here we are. Clifton begins, it is simply amazing the concocted ideas that some dream up for which they theorize to be the unpardonable sin. After listening to a professed teacher on television on this subject, I decided that I need I needed to write him a letter concerning his error. Then the thought came to me while I was at it that I should write an article explaining it to everyone 
At the same time, there were about 600 people on Clifton's mailing list at this time. Killing two birds with one stone, so to speak. In order to accomplish this, it will be necessary to start at ground zero, assuming that all who read this are unenlightened novices in this area of biblical theology. And even though Clifton sought to start at ground zero, it's impossible, and he didn't get far enough to ground zero in order for a, a normal out-in-the-world denominational Christian to understand this. And that's a very difficult thing for us to do, and it's always a challenge. We always have to base some things upon foundations which we've demonstrated elsewhere or which we know from other scriptures. Clifton continues, To start with, this television rancher teacher has several faulty premises on which he bases his flawed conclusions, which is a problem with the reader of this paper, which the reader of this paper might also have. Among the many inaccurate and unbiblical positions this man holds, a few should be pointed out. One, he uses the terms Jew and Israelite synonymously, supposing they are one and the same entity. Two, he also reduces everyone to a category of either being a Jew or a Gentile, falsely believing, as well as teaching, that the definition of the Latin term Gentile, or properly Gentilis means non-Jew, a definition the original Latin term never had. Nor did any of the writers of the New or Old Testaments ever use. And three, he holds to the false doctrine of a trinity of three gods, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that somehow the unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the later one, the Holy Spirit. In addition to these three flawed premises, he is totally oblivious of the fact that at Jeremiah chapter 24, Jeremiah separates the citizens of Judea into two classes, good fig Judahites and bad fig Jews. And I will explain that. And once the reader becomes aware of who the bad fig Jews are, he is getting closer to the appropriate meaning of our subject. Of course, the apostles used the terms Judeans, not Jews, and nations, not Gentiles. And Judea was a mixed-race nation, as they also explain in their epistles. But it would take a series of lessons to prove these things which we cannot elaborate upon here. The nations of which the apostles had spoken were actually the scattered 12 tribes of ancient Israel, of Israel 600, 700 to, a, to, to 1200 years before Christ. The nations of which the apostles had spoken were actually the scattered tribes of ancient Israel. The 12 tribes, Acts chapter 26, 
verses 6 and 7, James chapter 1, right at the beginning. And because most of the Judeans were not actually Israelites at all, Jesus was not a Jew in the sense in which we, the term was used today. For that, we have several articles at Christogenia, one of the more recent being titled, Exactly Why Jesus Christ is Not a Jew. But for now, continuing with Clifton. This rancher teacher first went to Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, and read the passage and said that anyone who would commit the unpardonable sin is doomed forever to the lake of fire. Now, Clifton has in parentheses here. You will need to read all these scriptures as we go along. But after this paragraph and in other places throughout this review of his essay, I will read them for us. He next implied that the condemning unpardonable sin was unbelief. In order to find support for his untenable position. He next reads Hebrews chapter 3 verses 15 to 19, applying it to Jews only, and again claiming it was the sin of unbelief. He next commented that many people go through life afraid that they have committed the unpardonable sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the vilest sin of all, the sin that can't be forgiven according to the words of Christ, and again asserts that it is the sin of unbelief. So, interrupting Clifton. In Matthew chapter 12, we read from verse 31, Wherefore I say unto you, these are the words of Christ, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost the King James Version, it should say, spirit, shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, or spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Right after that, Christ had said, in verse 33, and this provides context for the statement so that we may understand what he said. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by its fruit. Oh, generation of vipers, generation of vipers, calling men, particular men, a generation of vipers, meaning that he's saying that their parents were vipers because that word generation is the Greek word genema, and it actually means offspring. Oh, offspring of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? So we see evil parents and evil offspring. That's a tree in Scripture. That's a race of people. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the unforgivable sin must be related to the making of a good or an evil tree. And therefore, it must be more than mere unbelief. In Hebrews chapter 3, 
which Clifton also cited here, we read from verse 15. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, the provocation in the desert after the exodus. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Of course, Moses and the Israelites were not Jews. But Paul was speaking of the 40 years in the desert by which the unbelieving were prohibited from entering the land of milk and honey because their generation had died off during those 40 years. It has nothing to do with salvation of the spirit and resurrection into the kingdom of heaven. Nothing at all. It only has to do with punishment in this life for disobedience. So they were prohibited from entering the promised land. Continuing again with Clifton, speaking of his rancher teacher, he then reads Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, trying to gain further support. But those three verses mention absolutely nothing about unbelief. His incorrect premise is a result of not truly understanding verse 12 of Ephesians 2. He falsely applies verse 12 to what he terms Gentiles, but rather verse 12 is directed to the lost tribes of Israel. Thus, he incorrectly assumes that the gospel is being offered to the Gentiles, as he puts it, because of the Jews' unbelief. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wrote, Wherefore remember that ye, being in times past, the nations, not Gentiles, the Greek word ethnos, ethnicity, the Greek word ethnos simply means nations. Ye, being in time past, the nations in the flesh, the nations of the dispersed children of Israel, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens, now that word is a past tense Greek verb. It doesn't say aliens. It says being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise because they had been alienated, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off are made near by the blood of Christ. Paul was speaking to people whose ancestors were Israelites, and ancient history and scripture can prove that assertion. That is why later in that same chapter, Paul spoke of their reconciliation to Christ. Only descendants of the children of Israel could be reconciled, could be reconciled to Christ. You could only be reconciled to something to which you had previously belonged. You can't be reconciled to something to which you never belonged. You might be included in something which you never belonged. You might be invited, but you can't be reconciled 
Paul is speaking to scattered Israelites. Clifton continues talking about the rancher teacher that he saw on television. He cites a parable of Christ at Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 40 and verse 45. This rancher teacher concludes correctly that Yahshua's words were directed towards the Jews, and that at verse 45, the Jews understood he was speaking of them. All of these conclusions are based upon this rancher teacher's belief that the Jews are God's chosen people, something which is nowhere in the Bible, nowhere at all, and also in a trinity, and that's important. Because we believe from the scriptures, and the scriptures teach, that I and my Father are one. That Yahshua Christ is God incarnate in the flesh. And as he himself said in the Gospel of John, where he promised them the Holy Spirit, he said, I will not leave you comfortless, a word which actually means fatherless. I will come to you, which proves that he indeed is that Holy Spirit. There's no Trinity. There's one God who manifests himself to men in different ways. If you think there are three different gods, and you can never offend this one, but you can offend these other two all you want, you're kidding yourself. There's one God. Hear ye, O Israel. The Lord our God is one God. Yahweh, our God, is one God. And Jesus Christ is an incarnation of that God. As the Apostle Thomas proclaimed, my Lord and my God. Once he realized that it was he who was resurrected from the dead, realized that he was the promised Messiah, that the promised Messiah would be God himself incarnate, which is what is promised in the prophet Isaiah in the prophet Daniel. Clifton continues. In so many words, he says that the Jews rejected the overture of the father by killing the prophets. They rejected the overture of the son by killing the Christ. And that they also rejected the overture of the Holy Spirit at Acts chapters 16, 6 and 7. He finally points out that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and in the stoning of Stephen, the Jews rejected the overture of the Holy Spirit in unbelief at Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Such teachings change the context into a pretext. And it is the Jewish version of history that they rejected Christ. That's a lie. If we read if we read the book of Acts in its later chapters, I, I believe it's Acts chapter 22, if I'm not mistaken. James explains, James exclaims to Paul, Acts chapter 21, I'm sorry, verse 20. James, the apostle, exclaims to Paul, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Judeans there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. James counted 
thousands of Judeans who believe. And in the Greek, it's not thousands. In the Greek, it's the word myriadus, which, from which we get myriad. And a myriadus in Greek is 10,000, not 1,000. It's the common word for 10,000. There were tens of thousands of Christians in Judea who believe and are all zealous of the law, according to the Apostle James in the book of Acts. We have a history of several hundred years of Judean, I can't call it Jewish, Judean Christianity in Palestine. Those Christians lost their identity as quote-unquote Jews or Judeans. They did not go on to be Jews. It's Jewish propaganda that all Jews rejected Christ. Only a large number of Jews rejected Christ. Christ had told them, you believe me not because you are not my sheep. That's why they didn't believe him. Of course, the Holy Spirit in Acts descended upon Judeans, those true Israelites in Judea, whom Paul prayed for, as he had said that they were his kinsmen according to the flesh in Romans chapter 9. But Paul, in that chapter, did not pray for those Judeans who were not true Israelites. As he also explained that they were actually Edomites in that same chapter. There in Romans and in Hebrews chapter 12, Paul explained that Edomites were rejected by God. Esau was hated by God. Now Clifton addresses the rancher teacher's main premise. And he says, if the unpardonable sin is the sin of unbelief, which it isn't, there will be no forgiveness in this life or the next. Yet this rancher teacher, in his very next breath, claims that the Jews will repent and be in the millennial kingdom, which is also a misreading of the revelation, but we will let that one slide because that's what evangelicals believe, that the millennial kingdom is in the future. Clifton says, let's take a very close look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. And I've already cited it here, but it won't hurt to cite it again. Wherefore I say unto you, the King James Version, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the, I will read, spirit instead of ghost. That's kind of ridiculous. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world neither in the world to come. Clifton responds and says, the reader should take note that the one who blasphemes in this manner is condemned in this age as well as any future age. Therefore, the sin of unbelief is not the unpardonable sin. Now, I'm not saying that Jews could ever be saved, 
and identity Christians know that they can never see the kingdom of God. They can never see God. But the evangelical Christians claim that the Jews will all be converted to Christ after 80 generations of denying Christ, of unbelief. So, if the evangelical Christians are correct, all the Jews shouldn't be saved. Why could they be saved? They never believed. So, at most, if they all convert at the last minute, only that one generation of Jews who convert can be saved. It's ridiculous, but that's the that's basically what the evangelicals are teaching. But they don't know they're teaching that. They don't even take it into account. They're just hypocrites. So Clifton says, the reader should take note that the one who blasphemes in this manner is condemned in this age as well as in any future age. Therefore, the sin of unbelief is not the unpardonable sin. It's not. It's not the unforgivable sin. It is much more serious than that. This sin of blasphemy is so vile and without remedy that unbelief would look lily white in comparison. So Clifton is correct here that where evangelicals teach that the unforgivable sin is unbelief, that makes they make themselves out to be hypocrites. Because they also claim that Christ is going to save the Jews at the last minute of the world. The Jews who never believed. And they do indeed teach this. As can be seen at the website of one of the most famous evangelical preachers. Billy Graham. And I will, I will include a link with this podcast. There we read. Many Christians have heard that there is an unpardonable sin and live in dread that something grave they have done before or after conversion might be that sin. Their fears are unfounded. While there is an unforgivable sin, it is not one that a true believer in Christ can commit. And what a lie that is. It goes on to say, the point for us is that if we have received Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. We have accepted his witness. They're operating on a premise that belief, with belief, you could never commit that sin because the sin is disbelief, but that's not right. However, I'll read one more short paragraph from this website. Once again, the unpardonable sin is not some particularly grievous sin committed by a Christian before or after accepting Christ, nor is it thinking or saying something terrible about the Holy Spirit. Rather, it is deliberately resisting the Holy Spirit's witness and invitation to turn to Christ until death ends all opportunity. So evangelicals do believe that mere unbelief is the unforgivable unforgivable sin. But as we shall see here, that is not the truth. Unbelief is not the unforgivable sin. That's actually ridiculous. So Clifton continues under the subtitle, fornication equals blasphemy against the spirit.
Now that we have discussed what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit isn't, let's examine what the what it truly is according to the scripture. We will begin at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, where Paul says, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without the body, outside the body, is what that means. But he that commits fornication sins against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? That Holy Spirit. It's hard to define that word spirit. Spirit is sometimes a mentality or a state even. It's a state of being. Christ is the Holy Spirit, the comforter. The Holy Spirit is therefore a manifestation of God the Father, just as Christ was a manifestation or incarnation of God the Father. They're all different aspects of God. Holy, the word is hagios. Hagios means separated and devoted or dedicated to a God. And Yahweh God, when Isaac was placed upon the altar, had separated the seed of Isaac, which would come through Jacob, for his particular purposes. So Jacob and the seed which would come from him, the children of Israel, would be holy. Anyone violating that body of the children of Jacob, they are violating the Holy Spirit. They are blaspheming the Holy Spirit because Yahweh God told them that there would be a separate people, a peculiar people, a nation above all other nations. Speaking against that, you are actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So Clifton says, in the simplest definition possible, fornication is race mixing. Adultery can also mean race mixing, as it is in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the profane or secular Greek writers. But fornication is more specific. Therefore, anyone who fosters, orally or in writing, miscegenation of the Adamic with the non-Adamic blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. Some people might not like this explanation, but I didn't write the book, so I apologize not. Paul stated it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. If any man defiles the temple of God, sexually uniting his seed with an alien race, him or her, and Clifton has in italics, her ensuing offspring, because that's what the word of God says, God shall destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Paul had spoken those words immediately after describing those who would have no reward after death because they piled wood, hay, and stubble onto the foundation of Christ rather than gold, silver, and precious stones. 
Then immediately after his warning about defiling the temple, he condemned the wisdom of this world as it is contrary to the wisdom which is of God. Now Clifton addresses another claim to show you that the term fornication is separate from the term adultery. All we need to do is go to Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, where Paul said, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, so they're two separate things, that's Clifton's point, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, so that's something separate than from adultery and fornication. Because a lot of foolish pastors say that adultery is only idolatry or fornication is only idolatry. And that's not true. And that's a more important point here. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice here that Paul uses both the terms adultery and fornication, and he wasn't wasting words in doing so. For our purpose here, we will notice that fornication is in the same category with witchcraft. So it would appear that most of today's churches would be better designated as covens, assemblies of witches, and warlocks. And that may as well be so. Clifton refers to all those churches which have gone from forbidding to accepting race mixing in recent history. Now continuing, he says, we are told in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where Samuel addresses King Saul. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because thou hast rejected the word of Yahweh. He has also rejected thee from being king. Ironically, later on in 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul consulted a necromancer so that he could speak to Samuel, which was witchcraft, and it was forbidden in the law. So Saul sinned even after being warned against it. Now Clifton speaks of rebellion. We are told in Revelation chapter 12 of the rebellion of Satan and the third part of his angels. And Clifton has a note there that the angels are the stars. And that is true. The third part of, his, of the angels under him who were all cast to the earth to persecute the woman whom he correctly designates as Adamic Israel, the children of Israel who descended from Adam. Of course, Adam had many other descendants, but the children of Israel were chosen out from them. Thus Satan, a fallen angel who is identified as Satan, was the first warlock practicing witchcraft. And because, as Paul explained in Galatians chapter 5, witchcraft and fornication go hand in hand, Satan and his angels committed 
fornication first with animal kind and later with Adam kind in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And Clifton kind of backs his way into this, but it's nevertheless true that was the sin of the fallen angels. Thus, the non-Adamic or non-white races are not created beings, but rather the products of a mixture of angel kind with animal kind. And Clifton refers his readers to particular of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is presented in detail, as Clifton had presented it, in Watchman's Teaching Letter number 114. This is indeed the meaning of what is found in the Enoch literature among the fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it is also evident in Scripture. Clifton had already cited Paul of Tarsus, where he explained that fornication is the sin which is against one's own body. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam was presented every animal which Yahweh God had created, and he named each of them. But it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. A helpmeet is an archaic word, an archaic term for helpmate. If the Enoch literature had not been removed from Scripture in ancient times, we would recognize this as the antithesis to the sin of the fallen angels. So the response was that Yahweh God made a helpmate for Adam, a wife of his own flesh and bone, who was acceptable for a mate. Then Adam exclaimed, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That is the biblical marriage, that a man's wife be of his own bone and flesh, and not of strange flesh. Continuing with Clifton, he says, At Ecclesiastes 3.21, we read, who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? From this verse, we can substantiate that there are Adamic people as opposed to beast people. And for anyone who contradicts this, it becomes necessary to quote Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 27. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah, with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. This is a prophecy that is being fulfilled today and mass. But in order to grasp this, one must first understand that the house of Israel and the house of Judah are white Caucasian people. It is an incorrect premise to conclude that because of various ethnic backgrounds, such as Irish, German, Danish, etc., that the white Caucasian people are of a mixed racial group, for they are all of pure Israelite extraction and not to be confused with the bad fig Jews. Once comprehending these things, one can begin to see just how vile a sin fornication is. And this is all true, but like I said, Clifton thought he was trying to write this so that average denominational Christians may understand it, but they could never understand this. It takes a 
long time yet to understand this. And we would rather assert that at least most of them, at least most of the people of the nations that consist of the descendants of the tribes of ancient Israel, at least most of them are of pure Adamic extraction, as there were certainly other Adamic Genesis 10 tribes in the places which they came to inhabit in Mesopotamia and in Europe. And of course, we do believe that the prophecy of Jeremiah is being fulfilled today, that the house of Israel and the house of Judah are being sown right now with the seed of man and the seed of beast. It could not have been fulfilled when Christ came, which only fulfilled the promise of a new covenant. Because the 42,000 Judahites, Levites, and Benjaminites who returned to Jerusalem in 520 BC do not represent the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They only represent a small portion of the house of Judah, but it is being fulfilled now as the modern white nations are their descendants and the new covenant is yet to be consummated, yet we are being punished by being overrun with aliens. The consummation of the new covenant will not happen until Christ's return and he will separate the sheep from the goats, returning to Clifton. We should take into consideration Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, where Paul says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Anytime a white Caucasian commits fornication, that person is selling their birthright by flushing it down the toilet. And the product of such a union is a biblical bastard, a mamzer, as Clifton has in parentheses, a mutation of genetic confusion which can never be corrected in this age or the next. This is not a game of tinker toys, for it is no small matter. And I would say that the fact that Paul wrote this in his epistle to the Hebrews proves that race mixing was still considered a sin by the apostles. And this was written nearly 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. So now Clifton explains why Esau was called a fornicator. What is it that Esau did? He married Hittite wives of the Cain Satanic sea line. Now there also is a premise that Clifton didn't really get to the root to so that denominational Christians could understand it. He says, now don't go quoting Genesis 4.1 to me. For that is a corrupt passage, as described by the 12 volume, the Interpreter's Bible, and the Interpreter's one volume commentary on the Bible by Charles M. Lehman, commenting on Genesis 4.1. The Aramaic, not bad fig Jewish, the Aramaic Targum spelled, Je spelled Genesis 4.1 out quite clearly, that Eve committed fornication with Satan, producing Cain. Clifton took for granted that the author of Targum Jonathan, or perhaps Pseudo-Jonathan, was not an Edomite Jew. 
something which I will not decide one way or the other. But he does correctly point out another way that shows that Cain was not legitimate, as Genesis chapter 3 is indeed an account of sexual seduction related in a parable, where he wrote, That is why Yahweh told Cain at Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and Clifton has in parentheses, of the birth canal, and that is entirely appropriate. He says, thus Cain was a genetic misfit without the Holy Spirit breathed into Adam, of which Paul says our bodies are the temple. And being dead to the Spirit, he had no compunction about killing his half-brother Abel. Now, Clifton is right that Genesis 4.1 is indeed a corrupt verse, and it was corrupted at a very early time, and we can demonstrate from Arjun's Hexapla, which contains six different translations, or six different versions, I should say, of the verse, and that's the nature of the Hexapla. It was six different versions of scripture side by side, the Hebrew, and the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate, or, or an early Latin translation which preceded the Vulgate. And then three other later Greek translations, later than the Septuagint. It put them all side by side, and that's why it's called hexapla. Hex means six in Greek. And there are six different versions of Genesis 4.1, all demonstrating that the verse is corrupt because men didn't know how to interpret it. So the interpreter's Bible was certainly correct about the corruption in Genesis 4.1. And it can't stand. It can't stand as a witness to anything. It can't stand as a witness that Cain was a son of Adam because Cain was not legitimate from many other witnesses, one of them being Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. So Clifton said, that is also the reason Eve said at Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, for God, said she, has appointed me another seed instead or in place of Abel, whom Cain slew. Clifton says, had Cain been Adam's son, Eve would have said, for God, said she, has appointed me another seed instead of Cain. But by saying instead of Abel at Genesis 4.25, as Eve did, she included Abel in Adam's genealogy while excluding Cain. And that is because the oldest, it is the oldest legitimate son who is the appointed heir of the father. So Abel needed replacing and not Cain, as Clifton shall mention next. That is also evident in the sons of Judah, where the oldest of his surviving sons was Shelah, a bastard by a Canaanite wife. And Clifton will explain this shortly. Yet Pharez and Zarah, who were born much later, stood before him in the line of inheritance, and Shelah was pushed aside.
Now Clifton continues in regard to a debate within Christian identity as to the nature of Cain. So this gets sort of bogged down, where I think the paper could have been better without it. Now both the one seed liners, properly non-seed liners, that don't believe in seed line, and the two seed liners, recognize the three sons by Eve as Cain, Abel, and Seth. The two seed liners, however, would recognize Abel as the firstborn of Adam, whereas the one seed liners would recognize Cain as Adam's firstborn. Hence, it will be necessary to cite a similar biblical situation. Such a passage can be found in Genesis chapter 38, where twin sons were born to Judah by Tamar. It is recorded at verses 2 through 4 that born unto Judah by the Canaanite daughter of Shua were three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. The usual Hebrew reckoning would be first Er and second Onan and third Shelah with Er as Judah's firstborn. But after Judah's first wife died, leaving him a widower, and Tamar, his intended daughter-in-law, an unwed, lawful, likely candidate, although she played the part of a harlot to avoid a union with the half-breed Shelah, she bore for Judah the twin sons at verses 28 through 30. And actually, I must say that Tamar played the har part of the harlot to get what she had coming from Judah, a son from his family, since Judah would not give her to Shelah. If Tamar had not done that, evidently there would be no legitimate offspring from Judah. Yahweh did not forgive Esau for fornication, but evidently he forgave Judah, most likely on account of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Clifton continues to discuss the circumstances. But the midwife of Tamar must have been aware of the half-breed status, the illegitimate status, of the sons born by the Canaanite woman, and bound a scarlet thread on the hand of the twin, which she anticipated would be born first. Well, if Tamar's twins were numbers four and five to Judah, why did it matter which was born first? Like Cain, Ur, Onan, and Shelah were not counted as legitimate, lawful sons of Judah. Thus, Perez became Judah's firstborn and Zerah his second, just as Abel was Adam's firstborn with Seth taking Abel's place upon his death by Cain's murdering hand. For that same reason, all of the descendants of Esau were discounted. So Rebekah was troubled and made certain that the birthright and inheritance fell to Jacob instead. Continuing again with Clifton. The revealing difference between a half-breed as compared to a pure-breed is described in parable form by Yahshua, at Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 19. And I will amplify the wording for a better understanding. 
because he's going to add the term racial in many parts of this parable. And that is true. That is what Christ is talking about. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their racial fruits. Do men gather grapes of racial thorns or figs of racial thistles? Even so, every good racial tree brings forth good racial fruit. But a corrupt racial tree brings forth corrupt, evil racial fruit. A good racial tree cannot bring forth evil racial fruit. Neither can a corrupt racial tree bring forth good racial fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good racial fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Why, Clifton asks, because it is the sin unto death for which there is absolutely no remedy in this world age or the next. The final outcome is on record and cannot be changed. Families and races have been described as trees or plants ever since Genesis chapter 1. And in the New Testament, it is no different. So Christ is also recorded as having said in Matthew chapter 15, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. There he was also speaking in reference to people. Everything Yahweh God created is kind after kind, or to use another possible translation of the same word, kindred after kindred, and nothing he created was a bastard. So there were no bastards until men rebelled against him. Now, in modern history, men and women are rebelling on a large scale once again. Once more, Clifton goes back to Cain. Cain was, therefore, a corrupt tree incapable of bearing good racial fruit. The only thing mamsers, the Hebrew word for bastard, the only thing mamsers can do is breed more mamsers. And this continues down line forever or until the corrupt family tree finally dies out. The word mamser is the Hebrew word for bastard. For example, where it says in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. So Clifton continues, and appropriately, he comes full circle. This brings us right back to our Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32 reference to the unforgivable sin, with verses 32 through 35 stating, and he had just quoted Matthew chapter 7, which was very similar. And now we will see this concept connected to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So, Matthew 12, 32. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now, just like Christ had said in Matthew chapter 7, 
in relation to wolves and sheep's clothing. He says here, in relation to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, either make the tree racially good and its fruit racially good, or else make the tree racially corrupt and its fruit racially corrupt. For the tree is known by his racial fruit. Oh, generation, that word can be offspring or race even, Oh, generation of vipers, how can you, being racially evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good racial man, out of the good treasure of the heart, brings forth good things. An evil racial man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. That might seem like a stretch to many denominational Christians. But that word generation comes from one or two words in scripture, actually three words in scripture, but the first two are synonyms, genos and genea. And they both can mean a race, a stock, a family, that which is born. And then the third word is also related, the word which appears here, where Christ said generation of vipers, and that word is genema in Greek, and it means offspring. It refers to that which is produced. The related English words are genes and genetics, as well as generation, because in Old English, generation meant that which is produced. If it referred to people living at any one time, it referred to the people of a particular race living at any one time, not people of all races. The context is the key. It certainly can be established from the prophecies of the Old Testament, from chapter 9 of Paul's epistle to the Romans, from book 16 of Strabo's geography, and from book 13 of the Antiquities of the Judeans, written by Flavius Josephus, all of these being writings of the first century A.D. All of these being writings from right around the time of Christ. That many, or even most, of the Judeans of the time of Christ were Edomites. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, came from Esau and his Canaanite wives. The accursed Canaanites had mingled with the Kenites, who were the descendants of Cain, and with the Rephaim, who were the descendants of another cursed group, which were the Nephilim, or fallen ones. Together, all of these corrupt racial trees, as they all mingled together in ancient times, and many of them today are called Jews, and many Arabs, while others have migrated elsewhere throughout history, so they are known by other names. Again, Clifton continues on about Cain. From this we could see that it was an impossibility for Cain and all of his descendants, right up to the bad fig Pharisees and bad fig Sadducees, to bring forth good things from an evil treasure.
Nor can we expect any product of fornication to bring forth good things from an evil treasure. In other words, when they were born because they are bastards, their hearts are evil. They can't bring forth good things. Cain is the first example of such a product. Such people are mule people. A mule is half horse and half donkey or ass. Evidently, that is where the expression half-assed came from, suggesting something which is good for nothing. One will notice in this last quoted passage that Yahshua Christ first spoke of the unpardonable sin and then used the bad fig Jews as a prime example. In my church-going days, the pastors seemed intensely preoccupied with what they termed the original sin. But I don't remember them ever once identifying it as the unforgivable sin of fornication, which is what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Yet the fornicator himself or herself will survive with zero reward. But the works or products of fornication will be judged and destroyed by fire. It's a man's works which are destroyed or tried in the fire. Such, just such a judgment is spoken of at Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, where it is stated, And the day that comes shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. That is the judgment of fornicators, which is also described by Christ himself in Revelation chapter 2, where he says, I will kill their children with death. Speaking of fornicators. Speaking of race mixers. Where Clifton spoke of good and bad figs. If one reads the prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 24, it is clear that the prophet refers to three groups of people. The first are good fig Judahites, good figs of the people of Judah, who will return to Jerusalem after it is destroyed and be built up for their good. The second are the bad figs, and they are so vile they cannot be eaten, but it never says they are Judahites. Then there is a third group, Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. They are wicked Judahites who would be turned over to the bad figs for their punishment. This was fulfilled in the time of Christ. As the good fig Judahites turned to Christ and became Christians, and other Judahites had race mixed with the bad figs, the Edomites and Canaanites in Judea. Now they are known as Jews, and until this day, they are a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where Yahweh God has driven them, as Jeremiah also attested in that prophecy. 
Now Clinton returns with Paul's admonition to the Corinthians concerning fornication, which I mentioned at the very beginning of this evening. At 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, Paul brings to memory an incident where Israel engaged in race mixing, where he wrote, Neither let us commit fornication, Paul speaking to the Christians at Corinth, as some of them committed, and in one day fell twenty and three thousand. Clifton responds, this was in reference to the occasion at Numbers chapters 24 and 25, where the men of Israel were enticed to commit interracial fornication with Moabite women. The Moabites descended from Lot's incest with one of his two daughters, one son of which was named Moab, and another son of the other daughter named Ammon. And, of course, Lot committed incest with her also. By the time of the incident of Baal-peor, that's about 600 years after the incident with Lot and his daughters, the Moabites were no longer a racially pure people. We can be quite sure of this, as Paul called Israel's sexual encounter with the Moabite women fornication. We could be more sure of it, where Phineas destroys a prince of the people who is found coupling with one of those women and kills them both. And is for that, he is rewarded with an internal priesthood in Numbers chapter 25. And the curse upon Israel is ceased because Phineas stood up and put an end to the race mixing. Clifton says, what we do know is that shortly before the Israelites arrived in the Transjordan, the land east of the Jordan River, on the plains of Moab, Sihon, a king of the Amorites, had defeated the previous king of Moab, referring to Numbers chapter 21, and absorbed much of the Moabite territory as far south as the river Arnon. Now, Yahweh promised that he would leave Moab in the land that was south of that river. So the Israelites didn't take it when they invaded Canaan, and neither did the Amorites ever take it. It is reasonable to assume that the Moabites mixed racially with the Amorites as the women of the conquered became the booty of the conqueror. And how many times the Amorites had mixed their genetics would be hard to determine. But the Amorites are one of the Canaanite nations which are named at Genesis chapter 15, verses 19 through 21. Undoubtedly, the Amorites had even absorbed the genetics of Cain, the Kenites that are mentioned in those same verses. As we have also explained elsewhere, and as it is evident in Genesis chapter 34 and elsewhere in scripture. It was customary for the Canaanites to intermarry and to beg intermarriage with neighboring tribes in order to facilitate peace and trade with them. But this practice was forbidden by the law to the Israelites. So now Clinton felt he had to establish a proof of this in reference to the 
Moabites. Amorites, under the heading, Amorites absorb Moabites. What the serious Bible scholar must understand is that during the Joshua period, the Israelites destroyed the Amorites, who had absorbed the Moabites, killing and or displacing both of them. Upon driving the Amorites and the absorbed Moabites out of the promised land, it is recorded at Joshua chapter 18, verse 7, that half the tribe of Manasseh, along with the tribes of Gad and Reuben, moved into the former land of Moab, east of the Jordan. It was later, during the Judges period, that an Israelite lady from the conquered land of Moab, by the name of Ruth, journeyed with her mother-in-law Naomi back to Bethlehem. Ruth never told Naomi, your God will be my God. But rather, I will leave the jurisdiction of my judge, and your judge will become my judge. That is because the term Elohim is used for angels, judges, pagan gods, and the almighty Yahweh himself. And it has both a singular and a plural meaning. And when used of Yahweh, of God in the Old Testament, where it is almost always in plural form, it is always singular. It's the plural interpreted to be singular, in spite of what others say to the contrary. That is true. It is a plural of majesty, a plural that is meant to be a singular, but gives or denotes that additional honor is bestowed upon the person or entity that bears the title. The only sense in which Ruth was a Moabitess is that she was a Moabitess by geographic area rather than by Moabite genetics. But nearly all of nominal or denominational churchianity today use the story of Ruth to promote the perverted ideology of multiculturalism. And in doing that, are guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of which our body is the temple. And this is true. And the average denominational Christian will cry, what about Ruth? But it is demonstrable from several aspects of the book of Ruth that she was an Israelite by race. And a Moabite only because she was living there after David conquered or subjugated the surrounding nations, and the population of Israel began to grow. It is evident in 2 Samuel and the books of Kings and Chronicles that Israelites began to be identified by geographical terms rather than their tribe. And it is evident in Samuel and the book of Judges that that practice actually started a little sooner. Clifton continues. Paul warned against this, against race mixing, at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. And then he says, and I will use William Fink's translation from his letters of Paul. And Clifton had access to them almost as soon as I had completed them probably back in 2003, I think. 
Do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless? And what agreement has the temple of Yahweh, meaning your personal body, with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh, extended to the community of people, being a temple of God, the community of Israelite believers. Just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them and I will walk about and I will be their God and they will be my people. And that is an Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah, particularly referring to the children of Israel. So Paul did not take it out of that context. On which account, come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the Lord, or the prince, and do not be joined to the impure. The impure is the them that we must come out from the midst of. And do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. Clifton responds, knowing this, how dare anyone join their body, which is Yahweh's temple, in sexual union with an impure alien? What is there about the words be separated that we don't seem to understand? Now, I explained and defended that translation of that passage in Part six of my commentary on 2 Corinthians, which was titled, Come Out From Among Them and Be Separate, which was presented here in April of 2015. And I'm going to link that to the notes for this podcast. Clifton used it because, as I also demonstrate, the translation in the King James Version is confounded in several ways. It's just wrong in several ways. Now, once again, continuing with Clifton. A paper on the subject of fornication being the unforgivable sin would not be complete without some mention of Sodom and Gomorrah and the experience of the men of those cities demanding to use angels as mates in unnatural sexual intercourse. Even the name of Sodom has come down to us today as a symbolic allegory for the act of sodomy. At 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, we read, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overflow, making them an example unto those that should live ungodly. So how do churches accept sodomites today? How do they accept homosexuals today? Clifton said, Paul also condemned homosexuality homosexuality in these words in Romans chapter 1 from verse 26. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves 
that recompense of their error, which was meet or which was fitting. In other words, the disgrace of being a faggot is indeed the punishment, the punishment for turning away from God, which was the context of those words in Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> because they turned away from God, God gave them up unto vile affections. And instead of being natural and normal and raising children and families and having healthy lives, they became faggots and lesbians. That's exactly what Paul explains in Romans chapter 1. On more than one occasion, Paul warned against men who abuse or defile themselves with mankind. The word he used to say that is arsenokoites, having coitus with a man. And it is the same word used by the Greek poets and historians to describe what we call sodomy or homosexuality today and homosexuality. Homosexuality is basically a euphemism. It's an artificial word. It's a euphemism. It should be called sodomy because that's what it is. Just as fornication is a sin, sodomy is still a sin. And modern churches or radical leftists are not going to change the mind of God. In fact, for their sins, they await the wrath of God. And it will indeed come upon them. And anybody who accepts sodomites, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 31, is worthy of the same punishment. Now Clifton concludes the final paragraph of his essay. As described by Peter and Paul, homosexuality is a very vile sin, even deserving death. Yet, even worse than sodomy, as vile as it is, and I would not attempt to whitewash it in any way, the unforgivable sin of fornication by the mixing of race is by far the most reprehensible sin of all. At least homosexuality doesn't create mule people. Actually, it doesn't create people at all, which is mamzer from the Hebrew and translated into English as bastard. No, the unpardonable sin is not the sin of unbelief. I supplied some words there in brackets because they were clearly missing from even the earliest electronic versions of this paper, which I have on file. Many fools, when we discuss the unfor unforgivable sin, think that we do so out of hate because we're haters, but that is not true. Rather, we teach this out of love, first for our God and then for our people. Because who wants to see a brother or a sister have children whom God himself has promised to destroy, whom Christ himself said that he would kill? So we can stand by silently while our brothers and sisters consider raising children, which will never into, enter into the kingdom of heaven. Rather, those who accept or encourage race mixing 
race-mixing fornication. They are the true haters. They are the wicked. We're trying to do them a service by telling them that it's a sin. It's always been a sin, and it's still a sin. As Christ himself said in Revelation chapter 2, And unto the angel of the church in Theatira, write, These things saith the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and thy charity, and thy service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. So they had everything going for them in all those areas. But he says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Today we have these little feminist Jezebels running all over the place. Most of them have pink or blue or green hair. To teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except or unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, all those who commit fornication. They are allegorically Jezebel's children because she taught, she is used as the type for the devils who teach people that it's okay to commit fornication. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Why, if the parents sin, would Christ kill the children? There is only one reason which is evident throughout Scripture. Because fornication is race mixing and the children are bastards. That is the only reason why Jesus himself would kill children. In this instance, Judeo-Christians surely should ask themselves, what would Jesus do? So before you go to marry someone, someone of another race, now you know, if you hear this, what Jesus would do. He will kill your children. They will not see his kingdom. He tells them right here, and to this day, they ignore his warning. The pastors of today, every one of them is Jezebel. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of one race only, the children of Israel. And good night.